You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have my good friend Camille Pagan on the show back with us today. She has a phenomenal new book. It's called Everything Must Go, and this is a must-have for your summer reading you know, if you need a, a great book to take with you to the pool or by the beach or, um, you know, whatever your summer relaxation is going to be, this needs to be tucked under your arm uh, because it's 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 a phenomenal book and it's 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 made just for a time like this. Uh, Camille, thank you so much for joining me again today. Hank, you are too kind. Thank you so much. Well, it's uh, it's true and uh, and you're welcome. Um, I, I've been. um thinking through some questions lately that uh, that have been fun to ask people and i i, I want to pitch it to you and and see what you have to say um is yeah. there a piece of writing advice that someone has given you somewhere along your journey maybe it's yeah. a good piece of advice that's really stuck with you and you you know look back on it and go you know wow i'm so glad that that i've had this or maybe it's a piece of dreadful horrible advice <laughs> That you think back and go, man, I'm so glad I didn't take that. Um, or, or maybe you've got some of each, but do you, is there a piece of writing advice that sticks with you? Absolutely. So the one I'll start with is the one I tell everyone who wants to write a book not to listen to. Um, I've heard it at keynotes. I've heard it at graduations. I've heard it at conferences. And it's, if you can do anything else, go do that. And I just think that that's so ridiculous and gatekeepery. I think it's like some writers attempt it. I think they mean well, but um, maybe narrowing the playing field a bit. And I have just the opposite advice in that if you want to write a book, do that. You can make money on it. You can make it your career if you want. You can use it to make an even better career. I mean, I really think it's a transformative experience that is worth doing for the sake of doing it, um, even yeah. beyond what it means for you. So Every time I hear that, and I hear it every couple months, I just kind of laugh because it's so dumb. <laughs> well, it's so dismissive and so yes. uh, martyry. If you, you know, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm the martyr. I'm, I'm a martyred artist that I'm just doing this because uh, you know I, I have to, and it doesn't make me any money. Or that, that's such a lame cop out. It really is, and I feel like there can be so much joy in this work. That's almost right. what the story that's not being told as much as it should be is that this is a wonderful way to spend time, maybe make a living. Um, and I really believe that, yeah, writing can be hard sometimes, but it, it should be mostly joyful. It should be mostly enjoyable. And a lot of that just comes from how you're looking at it. How are you viewing your work? Yeah, that's, that's such great, uh, a great way to look at that. But is there a piece of good advice that you've gotten Yes. Along the, way. So the advice that I wish I would have taken earlier in my career is to really, and I'm sorry if everyone has said this, you know, a million times, but it, it's true to write the book that you want to read. Um, yeah. I've 
taken both approaches. So my debut came out in 2011 and it didn't sell well. The publisher gave me a lot of money for it and it probably sold like 12 copies. And so I tried to listen to what they were telling me to write, not even realizing that they were never going to buy another book for me, not, you know, anytime soon. And so I wrote three different books to market. One was historical fiction, one was contemporary from four different viewpoints, and one was very um, like romance oriented. And I hated all three of them. <laughs> they were terrible <laughs> books. <laughs> and the reason why they were not good was not because I'm not a proficient writer. Most of us can, you know, nail the various plot points, character arc, etc. But it was really because I didn't care about any of those books. And then my fourth book that I ever attempted to write, which became my second published book, I wrote just for myself. And it was one of the most amazing writing experiences of my entire life. Um, I just sat down, I had this idea, and I thought, this is just for me, no one's going to look at it. And that book flew right out of me, um, sold really, really, really well. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And it really taught me that when we're talking about voice, what I really think that means is writing something that pleases you as you're writing it, even if it needs work, right? Every book needs to be edited, but right. there's something there. You um, Did you begin writing uh, during a time when there was uh, a lot of uh, turmoil in your personal life? I'm trying to remember, was there a, a friend yeah. who, who was battling uh, something serious uh, health-wise? Yes, I had a life or death moment. So neither my own, interestingly. I had just had my daughter and my dear friend who lived just a couple blocks from me in um, New York was battling terminal cancer that would ultimately take her life. Mm. And I've been thinking about writing a book since I knew someone was writing the books that I was reading. I was probably seven when I was like, oh, there's someone behind this and I would like to do this one day. Yeah. Um, but it took that experience to be like, all right, it's go time. It just reminded me that even a very long life is not as long as we would like. And you really have to make time for the things that are important to you. And so interestingly, I really wrote that book in about an hour a day. My first book, my daughter would go to bed around seven because she was a baby and babies go to bed early. early. Right. Um, she wasn't a napper. Everyone said, oh, right when they're napping. And that never happened for me. Um, so I would sit down every night and just take the hour that I was actually awake enough to do this. And in about four and a half months, I had a book on my hands. So I think a lot of that was the drive that I had because of what I just described in terms of this life or death moment. But it also taught me that you can actually accomplish a lot in a very short period of time if you constrain. So something right. I work on with writing clients is just getting the work done a little faster without sacrificing quality. So um, I've been thinking about that because um, one of the the most impactful uh, things that I've ever written came uh, during a time when when we had a, a health scare with our youngest daughter and um, mm. she was having surgery and things like that. And, and it was 
it was really a way for me to channel a lot of those emotions that I was dealing with. And, you know, as, yes. as the dad, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're required to be, you know, stoic and strong and, and all of that. And a lot of days I wasn't feeling stoic and strong, but, uh, right. I could, I could channel a lot of that into my writing. Um, and, uh, and, and I know for a lot of people, um, there are moments of great emotion. Uh, sometimes it's great joy. Sometimes it's pain mm-hmm. or sorrow. Um, but those moments of, of heightened, um, emotion, uh, tend to bring out the the writer gene in in a lot of people um yes and and that's uh and and that's a wonderful thing and it's great to have an avenue for expression and 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 all of that my question is and and i think all you know all of that is is very well established in in the writer mm-hmm. community my, my question is when those moments have passed and yeah. you are on uh, on sure footing again and you know the the sun is shining again and you know life goes on as it does um what do you do to motivate you in those moments of of non heightened emotion yeah well this is where i think it's really beneficial to not be young <laughs> I'm, I'm 43 yes. And the majority of my clients are 40 or older. Not all of them. I have worked with younger writers quite a bit. Um, But as a coach, I would say most of the writers I work with are in their 40s, 50s, or 60s. And there's a lot of concern around, have I, you know, missed the bus? Am I too late? I really think the opposite is true. And if you look at the statistics on great literature or even literature that's just sold really well, it usually happens after 40. That is the experience. And I think that comes from just having a lot of life experience to draw on, where it's not necessarily so acute in that you've just lived through it. It's more like you have just lived through a lot at that point. And, you know, people often think that we're writing about ourselves and we're not. It's kind of boring. Most of us don't have exciting lives, thank God. <laughs> but we're drawing on those deep emotions that we felt. That's why we tend to be so sensitive. That's why the criticism hurts. That's why it's very painful at times to go through the experience of publishing. Um, but you are drawing on that well that you've created. So there's that. And then there are just like the little tricks, like using music. If um, there's a soundtrack or a playlist that really gets you moving For me, I like to go for long walks where I can just think and bring up some of those emotions that I want to channel into the work. Because, of course, we don't want to always be going through some life-changing moment in our own lives. A book is usually centered around that pivotal point where you see just one glimpse of the character's life because that's the important time. And so, you know, we can't recreate that over and over. The... um... Uh, someone listening today absolutely needed to hear that, um, that, you know, we're so conditioned by um, pop culture and the the um, the prevalence of, of this fame culture that we're living in that that, you know, if you don't do something by your early 20s, you know, you it has completely passed you by and yeah uh, the 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 gathering of life experience this is this is one of those careers that that is absolutely beneficial yeah it can only work in your favor and that's why you really see um there's a book out now i believe it's called lessons in chemistry and the writer is don't quote me on this i think she's in her 60s she's talked a lot in interviews about being a quote-unquote older debut writer and how that was really beneficial for her 
And there's so many stories like this. I mean, where the crawdads sing that book has sold millions of copies and she published it at like 72. So there's something there to that. I don't think it's a coincidence. It, it's so funny because um, uh, we actually recorded the first interview that she ever did uh, oh. on this show. And it was it was so fun to watch that book that uh, that, you know, at the time when we recorded it, it was I think it was just a few days before it published. It was already getting a lot of buzz, but, but, you know, you never know if that buzz is really going to translate to, to sales, you know, it's Mm -hmm. that butterfly feeling. It was so rewarding to watch how well that book has done. Yeah. That's amazing. I love that. So, so fun. Um, Camille, um, everything must go. How many books is this for you now? Number eight, not including a novella slash audible original I put out last year. So fun. Um, being on your eighth book now that's that's now out in the world and looking back over your back catalog and, you know, the, the journey that each one of those books uh, brought you on. Um, how do you feel about your uh, author career at this point compared with when you were a new author breaking in? Yeah, I feel really blessed. And I also feel like I'm an example of what's possible. Part of the reason I'm so vocal about not having to be the best writer. Um, So many writers have this idea that they really have to be truly exceptional. That's highly subjective, but that concept in their brains is very painful because of course your inner judge, which is there to protect you is constantly saying, well, you're not that. And really embracing that you don't have to be that in order to succeed, uh, nor do you have to be a number one New York Times bestseller. You know, I've made more than a million dollars on my fiction at this point, just from the books themselves. And I'm not someone your Aunt Sue, who's in like four book clubs, would know about. And so I just like to tell writers, I'm proof that you can do it. And that feels like a gift to me to be able to have that perspective and be like, you can absolutely do it if I can. Things we never got over. The new book by best-selling author Lucy Score, Bearded Bad Boy Barber Knox, refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough around the edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way with fist and beer usually in that order too bad for naomi her evil twin hasn't changed at all after helping herself to naomi's car and cash tina leaves her with something unexpected the niece naomi didn't know she had now she's stuck in town with no car no job no plan and no home with an 11 year old going on 30 to take care of There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, 
criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison, and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's, but Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. That's that's incredible. Um, you you've mentioned uh, uh, about this coaching business that you're doing now. How did that mm-hmm. get started? Oh, it's so funny. So I never saw this coming, and this is where life is always an adventure. <laughs> um, I a couple years ago wrote a book that was off brand for my publisher. It had a magical realism element. I really loved the book, and they said no way. Now, in retrospect, I'm glad that it didn't publish. It was not the right move at the time, but it felt really devastating to me. And I began working in a group coaching program and then hired a one-on-one coach. And the experience was really transformative. People talk about coaching like it's, you know, some 22-year-old in Bali who's just shouting, you know, advice at you and telling you to go live your best life. That's not actually what good coaching is. Um, And by good coaching, I would really recommend working with a certified coach, someone who's gone through six months to a year plus of training, um, who really is just helping you figure out what's going on in your brain so that you can see the story that you're writing for yourself. Um, And is it serving you? And from there, making your decisions. So I did all of this, really loved it, was really into being coached. And at the beginning of the pandemic, um, came across an opportunity to get certified as a life coach. And it was just an instant yes. I'd already been working with writers, mentoring, and then doing just kind of some career counseling. I wasn't actually coaching. And I just took this leap of faith when to get certified. I certified through the Life Coach School, which I really love. There are many programs out there, though, that are excellent. IPEC is one of them. Martha Beck has a good program. Um, Went in, spent a year training, formally set up my practice, and have been fully booked ever since. And I just absolutely love the work. That is amazing. Um, Are are there things that you encounter um, with other people that um, that are common things that, that all writers deal with? Like, are, are there certain hurdles that if people knew that they could just get over that, that, that the writing would come easier than they think it will? Oh, I'm so excited. I'll tell you my very favorite revelation that I've had that I love to share with people. So when we're not doing the work, when we're procrastinating, we're buffering, meaning like doing something else, like anything you could put the word over in front of overeating, over drinking, over uh, browsing on the internet, et cetera. So whenever we're doing that, the only reason why we're doing that is to avoid a feeling. And when I found that out, I was like, oh, because we can rationally understand that we're able to feel any feeling. And usually the feeling is just discomfort. It's not even anything major. It's not like shame or I don't know, something terrible, dread. It's just discomfort because it's uncomfortable. 
to not know if the book is going to be good, if your writing is any good, if the story is working, all those things that we kind of have to just cross our fingers and then do the work for. And once I learned this, I was just didn't really have a problem with procrastination at all. It was like, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to feel my feelings and I'm going to work through this. Do you, um, what are, what are some of the, uh, like, how do, how do I say this? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you encourage people to, to plan books, to, to be pantsers? Is there a, um, do you have a way of identifying what, um, what in any particular writer, um, uh, has a proclivity for and, and, uh, I guess what I'm asking is writers seem to be so different in their approach. Um, how do you coach someone knowing that they may all be coming from a different place? So I really specialize in coaching people who want to be career authors. Um, there are lots of different coaches out there, book coaches who will go through the actual story with you. I don't do that. That's really more editing in a way, and it's not my strong suit. Uh, there are just mindset coaches who can coach you on anything, but when I'm working with someone, it's usually through the lens of creating a career and actually making money from writing. And so with that in mind, I really don't recommend pantsing for that crowd. And I used to be a pantser, so I totally know that instinct to do that. But if you want to be writing a book a year or more, which is really what you should be doing in order to create this body of work that then becomes passive income, grows sure. your readership, et cetera, some degree of plotting is necessary. And what I do is a little different from some of the prescriptives out there in that I don't believe that you have to use something like a save the cat. You don't have to outline every single scene. I instead have writers really come up with a short pitch, a longer pitch, which is very similar to a query, um, and then a simple three-act structure just to make sure that you know the tent poles of the story and that there is a there there. Because a lot of times writers will get very excited about a concept and there's no middle of the book. That's what I see most often. So even though I'm not reading the pages, we talk through story, we talk through what's going on, et cetera. And the most prevalent issue with not being able to write a book is because there's no center. There's no middle of the story. And so Mm -hmm. if you can head that off at the pass and understand where the book is going, you're really golden. The rest of it is just like nuance and, and it's enough freedom that those people who love pantsing are able to see where the scenes take them, but they know what basically what's the midpoint, what's the destination. Right. Do you, um, I, I, I understand having the roadmap of the book. Um, do you have any sort of, uh, uh, do you encourage people to share that outline with other people like, uh, or, um, do you, uh, when you're encouraging someone or, or, or what, what is your process when, when you have an outline that, that you think works, uh, and that, you know, you see, uh, where the story begins and what that middle is and where it's ultimately going. Um, at, at what point do you allow critique, uh, to come in from the outside? It really depends on where the writer is. With a newer writer, I will work on it with them because even though I don't love, let's say, line edits or things like that, I can see story very well. I actually think that comes from decades of being a magazine editor um, and a journalist rather than the actual fiction work. I can just kind of see, like, is there a lead here? Where is this going? What's the point? What's the through line? Um, So 
there's that part where you could work with your coach or another trusted writer who would be able to see, is there a story there? With some writers, because I work with mid-career authors as well, they're really working with their agent to make sure that the agent has buy-in too, because they're the person that goes and sells the book. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but it's certainly appropriate for people who like to do that. Um, and then I guess the last piece of this is really learning to develop your self-trust so that regardless of what your agent says or your writing group or your coach, you know, I'll have clients disagree with me and I say, terrific, I'm here to make you think. I'm not here for you to follow everything that I say to do. Um, that's where you begin to understand from your own storytelling perspective, your talent, is this working? And then if it's not working, are you willing to stay with it and figure it out? Gotcha. So when when you're beginning a new story, um, mm -hmm. I'm always fascinated by that moment of of inspiration uh, that becomes a moment of creation. You know, at at mm -hmm. at, at one point in time, the story, uh, you know, everything must go doesn't exist in in any form or fashion. Uh, and mm -hmm. then either a character walks onto the stage of your mind, or maybe you're playing the what if game, and and you start you know casting that with 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 characters that that you come up with or maybe you read a, a news article or, or something like that and then this spark of inspiration goes off and then you as the writer uh you know you take the time to dig that story out of the ground and polish mm -hmm. it up and and then it 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 becomes something but at that one moment it it doesn't exist what is that first moment of inspiration like for you oh it's wonderful it's the moment that we all live for as writers like oh there it is i've been waiting for you <laughs> it's your meet cute with your story um this particular book was unusual in that most of the time a story just pops into my head and it's usually a combination of plot and character and i guess it's the chicken egg thing where i can never really tell in retrospect which came first but they usually go very closely together this book was something that I pitched my editor based on a one-liner. She just said, what are you thinking about? And I said, I really want to write a book about three sisters because I'm one of three. And I've been sort of thinking about a dementia storyline because the book is about a woman who is trying to get over her people-pleasing ways and is called home to Brooklyn by her sisters who say, listen, mom's losing her mind. And there was no character initially there. And that is really unusual for me. So as I sat down with it, it came pretty quickly, but I had to think, who is at odds with this plot that I've just suggested? Who would this be problematic for? Because if it were a story about some hyperachiever who just breezes through life, there's no story there. There's no tension. Right. And so I then thought of Lane, this character who is the middle daughter really good at making everyone but herself happy, which is such a common theme for women. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of what I coach on. It's a lot of what I've dealt with in my own life, even though I'm not like this character, that desire to take care of other people and to make them happy is strong. And I put her at a pivotal moment in which she's like, all right, I am done with this. I am gonna go live for myself. I'm gonna do what makes me happy which is in this case, having a family. Her husband's been just dragging his heels and she's about to turn 40 and she's like, okay, enough. I'm doing this with or without you. And then her sisters are like, come home. We really need you. 
And so you just see how that plot and character are at odds with each other. And from there, it's pretty easy to come up with the rest of the story. I mean, knock on wood, it was relatively easy. <laughs> Have uh, the um, the topic of Alzheimer's and, and dementia mm-hmm. really factors so heavily in this book. And um, I, I, uh, I lost both of my grandmothers to, to Alzheimer's. Uh, and this is oh, something... And well, well, thank you. Um, but the, there's a very um, specific um, th- there's specific emotions that are kind of um, come bound up in all of that. It, it is this something that you've experienced with with people in your family or, or or friends? Because the the way you wrote those scenes is so powerful and so uh, raw and real. Thank you. That is such a compliment. I have had several family members who struggled with and succumbed to dementia and just watching the effect on my family. I was not the direct caregiver. My parents are relatively young. Um, They're not yet 70. They had me pretty early in their lives and thankfully are healthy and sound of mind, et cetera. Um, But saw this elsewhere in my both sides of my family and What I remember most in every instance is the confusion in the beginning of thinking, is this something? Because one minute the person seems fine and the next minute they don't. And you want to really honor their desire for independence. That's part of what makes us humans is our free will, our our desire to do what we want to do. And yet wanting to protect them from themselves in some cases. And it's really very wrenching for a family and yet i saw my own family pull together in really amazing powerful ways and i wanted to capture a little of that too it's not sugarcoating it this is never anything that anyone would wish upon themselves or their family and yet there's something there about coming together around a common cause that we lose after a while and this is one of the ways some families are able to connect again yeah even though everything must go deals with um, some very heady um, issues, I, I don't want anyone to get the impression that this is a uh, a sad, um, depressing book. Because uh, while there are emotions that uh, you know that that take us up and down, um, mm-hmm. this this is ultimately a, a very hopeful book. Um, and and Lane, the main character, uh, you know, discovers an, an old friend, and and she starts working to to mend that relationship where did that part of the story come in i initially wanted that to be even more of the story i really love love stories i i find them personally very compelling and i like them with a strong character arc so i almost like my women's fiction with a heavy dose of romance and the way the story unfolded during edits didn't center as the romance didn't center as prominently as i initially intended And that was for the best. This is where a good team is really going to help you bring out the strongest story. But I wanted to bring some lightness and hope in because that's how life unfolds. Even as we're dealing with deep, heavy stuff, a lot of times there are other new beginnings and new relationships and just hopeful things on the horizon. And then like all of my books, I really deal with these topics with a heavy dose of humor because that's just how I look at life. I think that that's as many wise people before me have said, that's how we get through. Humor really right. allows us to enjoy the human experience more. And so that's how I come at things. Yeah. 
Um, Camille, we uh, since the last time we talked, I think there's been like a global pandemic that's happened uh, in in the in the intervening time. Um, how did you know this last two years uh, affect you personally? Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, it's that exact mix that I was just talking about. There was so much pain and then so much joy too. It was very hard to have my two children at home. My younger child, my son, really suffered from virtual schooling. There was, it just was not right for him in any way. And I think also just what I'm hearing from other people that younger children struggled with this more. Um, yeah. So that was really challenging for our family and our school district stayed closed for as long as humanly possible. And so mm. there was this balancing act of here I am, I had, gosh, two books come out during the pandemic, one right as the pandemic started, and then one last May, and wrote two more books and just, you know, had the career, launched my coaching practice, got certified as a coach. And that was all amazing. And yet here I'm dealing with a lot of stuff and I got COVID. And that was not fun. So uh, yeah, we been, we passed interesting. we passed COVID around the end of last summer, and uh, oh. there's nothing fun about that. But you know, thank no. God we all you know survived, and um, you know it was a it was a blip on the radar. But boy, was it a big blip! Yeah, it's just frightening the unknown, knowing that this is it can be deadly, and watching yeah. people deal with that very yeah. scary. Well. Um, we got a phenomenal book out of it. Everything Must Go is available everywhere now. Um, Camille, if we know anything about the publishing industry, this book has been off of your desk for, for quite a while, probably. Um, mm -hmm. What are you working on now? My next book is called Good For You, and it's out February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2023. Oh, nice. And it's, oh, it's just my favorite book that I've written in a very long time. So I'm super excited about it. And I don't know what I'm going to write next. We'll see. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I can't wait to to get my uh, hands on that one. In the meantime, go grab Everything Must Go. We're going to have links to it in the show notes. You can grab it in Kindle, Kindle edition or hardcover or uh, get the audio book. Um, Camille, your books yeah. are so uh, amazing on audio. How, how do you feel about, um, you know, this this rise of, of audio books as of late and, and having your books performed by someone? I love it. I think audiobooks are such a gift. You can really multitask and listen to the story as you're doing all the things. And I found so many new readers that way. Um, and I love Amy McFadden, who's narrated most of my books. She's just incredible. Great. Excellent. Yeah. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of Everything Must Go. Uh, Camille, if, if people are just discovering you, where can they connect with you online? My website is the best way to find out all the places where I am, all the social links and stuff. And that's just CamillePagan.com. Great. And uh, your your coaching business is at evenbetter.co, is that right? That's right. Yep. And there's a link directly from my site um, from Camille Pagan as well. Excellent. We'll link all that up to make it uh, easy for folks to find you. Uh, Camille, always fun to catch up. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Same. Thank you so much, Hank. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves, the Jason Crane series. They sat in silence, leaning on spook rock. It pulsed against his back, in rhythm with his heart. He fought an urge to press his palms to it and steal its mysteries. Kate took her hand away. 
This fundraiser for my father's campaign, was it your idea? No, I didn't think so. You need to watch out. For what? She stood and paced, hands in pockets, avoiding his eyes. Right now, you're a free agent. Nobody knows what you can do except me and Joey. That's rare. You've got space to find your own path without everybody watching you or controlling you. How many of them, us, are there? A few handfuls of families. We used to be all over, but we're kind of dying out. The secrecy issue makes it hard for us to find each other, hard to find people to marry and the like. So we congregate in a few obvious places. Salem, Sleepy Hollow. Transylvania? Don't be stupid. There's no monsters, just people. And ghosts. Ghosts are people. They were. She held her arms out. That's all there is. People in the spirit world. And places in between. Magic places. Haunted places. Like this. We gravitate to towns where we can stick together. It sounds nice. It can be smothering. We have factions. Not all of us want to get by in peace. Some of us, my father is one, say we need to be more aggressive. Increase our numbers. Take charge of things. Politics, finance, fix the world. People listen. They think they're special. They don't call themselves the gifted. They call themselves the appointed. As if God singled them out to rule. My dad's a good man. He just thinks he knows what's best for everybody. And you'll be meeting his crowd. At the fundraiser. It will be mixed. Mostly normals. But I'll point out the dangerous ones. My father employs a man named Mather. You can't miss him. He has purple eyes. Mather is like this rock. He'll be able to sense you. If you want to stay a free agent, you'll need to avoid him. Or else what? They'll want to recruit me? You're Ichabod's descendant. Ichabod was attacked and survived, a potential founder. They're already watching you. I'm no good to anyone. You don't believe that. Neither do I. She knelt and pushed the hair out of his eyes. What am I going to do with you, Jason Crane? Love me, he thought. He felt himself lean forward. They would kiss here in this sacred place, beneath the stars. Stars? Stars? What time is it? Jason jumped to his feet. We need to go. Why? A firefly swept the air, flared yellow-green, and died. What's wrong? She followed his gaze and gasped. Fireflies swam in every dark crevasse. Faces coalesced where the lights hovered. Faces of crones and young boys and stern men. Emaciated, hale, wounded, vacant, menacing, piteous. Bodies took form. Military uniforms. Bonnets, black lace, crepe, shrouds, winding sheets. Sleepy Hollow Cemetery had disgorged its dead, and that grand army of spirits now made camp at Spook Rock to await orders from their leader. A laugh chopped the wood of the forest. Jason had heard that laugh before. He squeezed Kate's hand. Run! Run!